sun comes up. I worship your holy name. 
in the last song, we're going to pray for offering, and like last week, I'm going to go ahead and ask if any of you guys want to go ahead and step up and pray for offering. Maddie did it last week. Titus? Go ahead. Come and take Wendy's mic. You don't need a mic? Even better. That's what I love. All right.
Father, we come here tonight to worship you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that your love never changes and that your love never fails and that it will never give up, give up on us, Lord. I pray tonight as John speaks his message, Lord, that um, it'll change our hearts, Lord, um, and that when we leave here, Lord, we won't forget about it and that um, we can apply that message to our lives, Lord, and live it out like you say we shall. Um, in your name I pray, amen. I want to tell you guys a funny, interesting story about me. So when I, I used to skateboard like all the time. Um, I love skateboarding. It is, I still love it. If I had the means and money to actually go out and purchase a skateboard, like you would see me kicking it at the skate park, trying to relearn how to do all the tricks I used to do. Um, I absolutely love it. Uh, when I was 11 years old, I had a buddy of mine who, I, th- well, I thought he was a friend, but he was selling me a skateboard. And uh, he sold to me for 30 bucks, usually a deck. Do you guys know what a deck is? Raise your hand if you know what a deck is. So a skateboard's got like four, four main parts. You have wheels, you have bearings, which are what spin the wheel. You have the trucks, which are the axle, the metal part. And then you have the deck, which is just the big piece of wood that sits on top of all of it. And so he sold me a deck for 30 bucks. It was a blank, which just means it was, it was not a brand name skateboard. It was just, it was pink. I loved it. I thought it was awesome. It had pink grip tape. I thought it was super sweet. Had a design cut in it. I was, I was hot stuff because I had the pink blank skateboard. And um, I had it for about 30 minutes after I sold it and he left. He lived about uh, a mile and a half away from me in a town in South Charlotte or a suburb of South Charlotte called Matthews. And uh, as I had it for about 30 minutes, started to put it together. I got one truck on it, and I realized it had a big crack running down the middle of it. And I realized I got ripped off. I felt wronged, right? Like, dude's my friend. Why would you sell me a broken skateboard for 30 bucks when I can get a brand new one for 50 bucks? And so me and a buddy of mine named Derek, we, like, book it out of the house and start running. Um, we cut through some woods, we went behind my old grade school, and we pop out at the front of his neighborhood. And at the front of his neighborhood, I see him and a friend kind of coming toward us. And I was, I was hot. I mean, I was angry, super mad. Uh, and so I walked up on him with my fist balled like this, okay? I had never, the only person I had been aggressive toward my entire life up to this point was my older brother, who was like way bigger than me and used to sit on me, take the remote so he could watch WWE. But... Um, <laughs> So that's, yeah, so that's like the, the highest point of aggression for me. And so I was so angry at this guy. Um, and I thought he was my friend and I felt betrayed. And so uh, I saw him from like 50 feet out and I popped out so that he was coming down the street this way and I popped out of a neighborhood this way and his house was down here. And so I popped out and me and my buddy Derek started walking towards him. And I walked toward him and, and I had a skateboard in my hand and I, I still had the truck that I was trying to screw onto it and I was holding it by that. And I took the skateboard and I threw it at him while he was riding his skateboard. And then I ran up to him, and I hit him in the face, reached in his pocket, took my money, and walked away. Didn't say anything to him. Why am I telling you this story? Let me ask you this. What did I do wrong? This is, this is, a, this is, a, this is a fun, what did I do wrong? Just shout him out. Ask for the money back, everything. Okay, what did I do wrong? I started with violence. Yeah. Right, like you could just say I was a jerk, right? I mean, like, let's be honest. Right, yeah, I shouldn't have even bought the skateboard. Yes, exactly. What'd you say? Retaliation, right? I wanted revenge, right? So there's something wrong with my heart there. 
Would any of you say I had love for him? No. <laughs> okay. The reason why, here's, here's the thing, and here's what I, I want you to see. Here's what we just did. We analyzed the situation by looking at my behavior. That's what, we're naturally inclined to do that, right? Like you guys named a, a ton of things that I just did wrong, and those were wrong things. Like you're all right. But if just like Jesus, the, the, the point is not the behavior. What's the point? We've been talking about it since January. What's the point? It's not the behavior. What is it? It's the heart. Why did I respond that way? That's the question. That's the key question. It's not what I did wrong. And so I asked the question like that to trick you. But now let me ask you this. Why did I respond that way? Why do you think I responded that way? Okay, anger got the best of me. That's, and that's a correct answer. I want, I want you to say that. I was triggered. That is a correct answer. Yeah, I used to be a jerk. I just, a really big jerk. It's probably because my brother sat on me all those years. I'm just kidding. The reason I responded that way is because I had no love for God. Like, I want you to see that. I want you to see that all of our behavior, all of it, all of it, any behavior that is, that is rooted and grounded in sin, all of it, the, the essence and the core of that evil in my heart was that I had no love for God. And in that moment, what I did was I chose love of me more than love of God. And so how does that, how does that decision, how does that choice to love myself more than God, show up. All of the things you just said, that's how it shows up. But you see, what we do, we kind of stay on the surface. Like we, we, we look at the behavior. We look at, we look at all of these things that point to the heart without ever getting there, without, without ever naming it and saying, this is the problem. The problem isn't that I was just that I was angry. The problem is why I was angry. And why was I angry? Not just because I had no love for him, but I am incapable of loving this guy if I have no love for God. And so the problem isn't my anger. The problem is my love. And that love was redirected toward me and away from God. And I responded this way. I didn't want to rely on God in the middle of a difficult situation. And I, I radically love myself greater than I love God. And, and like the, the, for me, you know, I didn't get saved until I was 18. So I had a lot of years of dumb decisions like this. But the, the, the point is this. My heart now has been transformed by the gospel. My hope for you is that either your heart has been transformed by the gospel or God is working in you in such a way that your heart is transformed by the gospel. Why? Because in situations like this, in difficult situations, you will no longer rely on yourself. You will rely on God and you will desire God and you will want God involved and active in those situations. Now, why is all that important? Because the gospel calls us to a greater love. The gospel calls us to a greater love. And he calls us to a love that doesn't just extend outward to other people, but it, it, he calls us to a love that extends heavenward, a, a love that extends directly to God. This is not a love that we can have on our own. In fact, the love God calls us to is so radical that we are incapable of doing it on our own. It is impossible to love the way that God calls us to apart from him. And since God calls us to radical love, we must rely on God. We must rely on God. We must trust with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and lean into him in every single situation. We must rely on him. 
And so what we see in Matthew 5, 38 through 48 is two situations that are very difficult for us as believers, very difficult for the disciples, and Jesus is teaching them how to respond in these situations. And in Matthew 5, verse 20, right, the, the verse right before Jesus goes into the, the texts that say, you've heard it was said this, but I say to you. You've heard what it was said this, but I say to you. Remember, we've been doing this for like the past five weeks. You've heard it was said, do not murder, but I say to you this. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you this. Before Jesus says all that, he says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus has been describing to us as we've gone through these six different pictures, we're going to do the last two tonight, is what a righteousness greater than the religious people of Jesus' day looks like. This is how it looks. It looks at the heart. It's righteousness that impacts not just your behavior, but your heart, and then overflows into your behavior. That's cool. That's really cool. I love that, how God, like we didn't plan that, right? Like you didn't tell me about that earlier. See, it's not a trick. That's just how God works. That's awesome. So what I want you guys to do before, like not before, we're going to do it now. I'm going to quit saying that. Um, I want you guys to look, look at Matthew 5, 38 through 42, and somebody read that for us. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. It's going to be up on the screen. Go ahead. Okay, so we're gonna do we're gonna do a little little picture here because there's some cultural things, right? Like I'm obviously not wearing a tunic or a cloak right now, right? Like that's just not happening. Um, and you would never see me in a tunic or a cloak unless I had a pair of Jordans on underneath. I'm just kidding. So um, what I need is Duke because I like you and I like everybody else. But can you help me out? I figured you'd be all right with helping me out with this. Come up here for a minute. So if you guys don't know, this is Duke. Everybody say hi, Duke. I do. Duke is fantastic. I have your Captain America hat in my office, by the way. So um, Duke has a Captain America hat. It's fantastic. Give Duke a high five before you leave. So Duke, I need you to stand facing me. Okay, so would you guys agree? Now, raise your hand in here if you're left-handed. There's one person in this room that is left-handed. Two, three. Okay, three people in this room that are left-handed. This is fantastic. But what I want you guys, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Okay, so obviously I think we can all agree that the majority of people are, what, right-handed, right? Okay, it's this, all right, you guys can put your hands down. So it's the same in Jesus' day. It was the same in Jesus' day. In fact, it was so rare that when Jesus was saying this, he intentionally said right cheek. Why? Because if I'm standing in front of Duke, Duke, come this way. If I'm standing in front of Duke, Duke, where's your right cheek? 
Yeah, perfect. Good work. Come on. If you got to go like this, go like this. Figure it out. All right? So Duke's right cheek is here. Where's my right hand? It's on this side, right? If I'm going to smack Duke on the right cheek, how am I going to have to do it? I'm not going to actually smack you. You're okay. <laughs> so, but if I'm going to smack Duke in the face, I have to. I have to backhand Duke. I have to. You can go sit down. I just wanted to show you guys that. Why is that important? Yes, but if I backhand you, how much more disrespectful and degrading is that to you? A lot more. What I'm actually communicating with my actions in backhanding you is not just that I want to smack you because I'm mad. It's you're inferior to me. You're less than me. You're not as good as I am. And so a backhand is extremely insulting. And Jesus, what does he do? He tells the disciples to turn their other cheek, to willingly receive a second slap after being so disrespected. What Jesus isn't arguing for is not defending yourself. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. But what Jesus is saying is that we as people who claim to follow Jesus and have been so impacted by the gospel that our lives are transformed, do not respond to evil with evil. Do not respond to evil in retaliation and revenge. To not do that. Why? Because our hearts. Why do, why do we even need to respond with retaliation and revenge? Because we're selfish. Think about it. Any single time. Every, everybody in here has wanted revenge or to retaliate for something. My brother took this. My sister did this. Whatever. We all want justice and we want it to see done, but we want it because we were wronged. Not because God was wronged, because we were wrong. We were more concerned about ourselves and more in love with ourselves than we are with God. And that is the point of what Jesus is getting at here. The second example, to, to be sued, to be in a lawsuit and to, and to, and to take your tunic. And I, kinda, I wore this on purpose because the way that first century folks would get dressed is they would put on a loincloth, which is like your underwear, and then after they put on their underwear, they would put on a tunic, which is kind of like a shirt and pants hybrid thing, right? And then they would put on a robe, right, which goes over the tunic. And so if you're going to sue me and take my tunic, it's like you taking my t-shirt from me, but I get to keep my hoodie. What does Jesus say here? He says, give him your hoodie too. Why? Because now it's, Jesus goes a step further. He doesn't just say, I don't want you to respond to retaliation, with retaliation. I also want you to make every effort to work for the good of people. So if they're going to see you and they're going to take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Now here's the interesting thing. Now obviously I have a pair of jeans on. But if you take my, clo- my tunic and my cloak, what do I have to cover up with? And what more shameful place could I be in? Think about it. Putting myself in a position of shame for the sake of somebody else, for the sake of God. And the third picture that Jesus gives us here is this interesting scenario where you have somebody asking to go with you one mile and then go with them too. Again, this is like a weird cultural thing. So in, in not weird cultural thing, but just something that doesn't happen today. So did they have cars back in the first century? No. 
And back in, in first century Palestine, the Roman Empire, raise your hand if you know what the Roman Empire is. Okay, so Caesar, they had military occupancy of Israel. And so basically, it's like if China came into the U.S. and was running things. It's still the United States. We're still here. We're still in the U.S., but China is running stuff. And so Rome had military occupancy of Israel. And what would happen is Roman soldiers, in an effort and an attempt to oppress Jewish people, would actually require free Jewish people, when they were traveling, they would make them and force them and cause them to carry all of their stuff. And so if you're like, Connor, if you're like in your house cooking dinner and a Roman soldier comes in your house and says, hey, Connor, I need you to take my stuff and I'm going to go here to this town that's a mile and a half away. You were legally required to go. If you didn't, you would get thrown in jail. And they would walk freely like this, like I am, and you would carry all of their military equipment. Now, how'd that make you feel? How'd that make you feel? If you were required to do that, if you didn't carry this guy's military equipment, you're going to jail. Like, be honest. Right. You'd be like, this jerk. Like, carry your own stuff. Right? I mean, like, seriously. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't just go with him one mile. Go with him two miles. This is incredible because what Jesus is saying, in the face of the most difficult evil, we do not resist. And what I mean by that is we don't firmly stand against it and fight back. Does that scare you? I'm sorry. Um, we don't firmly stand against it and fight back. We don't say, you're wrong. You need to change the way that you're doing this. No, we submit. And Jesus calls us to submit joyfully. And these are principles, not commands. These are illustrations and pictures to help us understand how we should respond to evil. What this isn't, Jesus isn't saying every time you get smacked in the face, you need to turn your other cheek and say, hey, smack this one. That's not what he's saying. He's giving us pictures and principles and illustrations to show us the correct posture and attitude of how we should respond to evil. Does that make sense? And the whole way that this kind of lines up is that God is calling us to radical love and Jesus is calling us to respond to evil with meekness. With meekness. To respond to evil in such a way that we're not overtly concerned with our own. We're not, we're not wrapped up in this, in this desire for ourselves to be pleased. We're not. We're meek. We're humble. The crazy thing is, what drives me crazy about this, because anytime I see injustice or I'm wronged, I want to point it out. I want you to know that you wronged me. And what Jesus does in this response, he doesn't even command the disciples to tell the people that they're being wronged. He just calls them to submit to it. He just calls them to submit to it. Out of their love for God, they respond to evil with meekness. Out of their love for God, they respond to evil with gentleness and humility. They're considerate, thinking of the interests of others, not being impressed with themselves. So often we think that when someone does something to us, our initial concern is to defend ourselves or condemn them for the way that they treated us. And Jesus urges us to respond in a way that we are concerned with working for the good of others, even for people we would be in conflict with. It sounds crazy, but this is the depth of the love that Jesus calls us to in the gospel. Somebody read verses 43 through 48 
It's the next section. Somebody want to read that? Read that, read that. Go for it. This is crazy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for the people that harass you and insult you and hurt you because of your desire to follow Jesus. Love your enemies and care for the people that are hurting you. The first thing I want you to see is that the disciples receive a command to love their enemies. And then right after that, right after it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, it says this, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. Jesus gives the command, love your enemies and pray for the people who persecute you. And the purpose of loving our enemies is this, that we would become sons and daughters of the Father. Why is that important? Because our entire identity, all of our identity as sons and daughters of Jesus, all of it, cannot be separated from a desire to love people. You cannot, it is impossible for you to say, I'm a Christian and not have a desire to love people. Impossible. And if you say you're a Christian and you don't have a desire to love people, I would question your love for God. I would. But I would question your love for God in such a way to call you to Jesus. To say, if, if the God that you know or the God that you think you know doesn't motivate you to love people, I, I want you to meet Jesus because he will. I want you to know him because he will. You cannot separate a love from people from a love, from God, a love for God. Even love of our enemies. That's how deep Jesus is getting at here. Even the people that we think we hate the most, the people who have wronged us the most, the people who have hurt us the most, the people who we think are wrong and evil, to love them. Just like you do your best friend or the person sitting next to you right now to love your enemies. When Jesus calls us to follow him, our entire identity is no longer defined by sin. God declares us as his possession and our lives are meant to reflect him and his kingdom. This is important. Our lives are meant to reflect Christ and his kingdom. If you, if you miss this, you will miss everything we talk about every single week. Every single week. Jesus is telling his disciples that their ability to love their enemies, their ability to love their enemies and pray for the people who hate them is completely dependent on their identity as sons of God. Again, it's not about their behavior, is it? It's about their stance with God. Where are you with God? And how has God impacted your life? And if the answer to those two questions are, God has impacted my life and I am with God, then it compels you, it motivates you, it causes you to love people, even your enemies. That's the depth of the love that Christ calls us to. And it's radical. It is radical. It is perfectly okay in our culture to dislike your enemy. 
It is. It is. It is perfectly okay and acceptable in our culture to hate somebody who has wronged us. It is perfectly acceptable in our culture to harbor bitterness if you have a good excuse for it. And Jesus says, no. The love of God penetrates our hearts so much that it gives us a desire, a want to love our enemies. Not a like begrudging love like you do for that like uncle or whoever you don't want to talk to, like that, or your, that grandma that pinches your cheeks too much or whatever. Like, I'm not talking about like, oh, I have to love you. No. Like, this is a love that you enjoy giving. Like, it is a joy. You get pleasure out of giving this love to other people. A love to your enemies. Imagine that. Taking pleasure in giving love to the people that you're supposed to hate more than anything else. Imagine that. Like, how impacted is the heart when that is happening? How much is Jesus Lord when that is happening? How much is Jesus on the throne when that is happening? How much is Jesus in control of your life, your desires, your wills, your wants when that is happening? Like, it, that's crazy. It's unheard of in our culture. And it's unheard of in their culture. Look at what Jesus says next. This is my favorite part in this entire passage. He says this in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What reward do you have? Which means what? We get a reward from loving our enemies. If you don't believe that, look at the Beatitudes, like the first 10 verses of Matthew 5. We taught, there is much reward in following Jesus. And, and, and Jesus points back to that. He says, what reward do you have if you love those who love you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. What Jesus is saying here, and it, this is incredible, because the tax collectors worked for the Roman government. Again, think China occupies the U.S. And then I worked for China, and it was my job to collect money from all you guys to pay taxes to China, even though you live in the U.S. Would you like me very much? Now let me ask you this. What if you were supposed to pay 100 bucks a year to taxes? Now that's like super low, but we're just, we're just playing around with numbers. 100 bucks a year was the legal amount that you were required to pay China for taxes. What if I charged you 150 bucks, pocketed 50 bucks, and then gave 100 to China? Would you like me then? That's how tax collectors made a living. They took money from people, pocketed some, and gave the rest to the Roman government. Jewish people hated tax collectors. All of Jesus' disciples are Jewish. And so what Jesus says here is, I'm calling you to love your enemies, but if you only love people that, that love you, what difference are you than your enemies? How different are you from your enemies? The tax collectors do that. The people that you claim to hate, your enemies do that. And then he goes a step further. If you greet only your brothers, Christian in here, if you hang out with only Christians, if you greet only Christians, if you pal around with your circle of Christians and don't welcome anybody else into that friendship and that bond, you're no different from the world. That's what he's saying. The Gentiles do that. They greet the people that are just like them. If we hang out with the people who are just like us, we're just like the world. What sets us apart? A greater love sets us apart. And since God calls us to radical love, we must love our enemies. Because if we love our enemies, guess what? We'll look different than our enemies. 
But if we love only the people that love us, how different are we from the world? Are we really that different? If we only love the people that have love for us, if we only care for the people that care for us, if we only love to get something in return, how different are we from the world? How different are we from people who don't follow Jesus if we only want to hang out with people in our clique or the people that follow Jesus? Like, hey, you and me, hey, we follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus together, but never hang out with people who don't know the Lord. How different are we from people who don't know Christ? What, what greater compassion or love are we showing them? Like, this is, I, I'm saying all this because, like, this is an incredibly radical, unheard of, ridiculous love. Like, this is evidence that, that the power of God is at work in us. Because if we're doing this, you think about it. Think how Think about the kid that I told you about that ran up on some dude because he got ripped off $30 and just hit him in the face. Like, think about how hard-hearted I had to be to do that. Think about how stubborn and selfish I had to be to do that. Only the transforming power of God can take that person and motivate them and cause them to love their enemies. Like, that's why Jesus is going here. That's why this is a greater righteousness than the religious people in the world. Because it takes us to verse 48. It takes us here where it says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's a high standard. We could look at that in verse 48 and we could say, Jesus, like I'm in the world, I still sin. How are you calling me to perfection? And I'm gonna kind of geek out on you a little bit here. In the Greek language, perfection or perfect, that word for perfect, it can mean four different things depending on the context, okay? Are you with me? The word perfect can mean four different things. Here's what it means in this context. It does not mean perfection in the sense that you will have no sin in your life or you're not affected by sin. That's not what it means by perfection here. What it means by perfection is perfect completeness, maturity, and not lacking in anything. Perfect completeness. What is the goal of the Christian life? I'm gonna ask you that. Pop quiz. What's the goal of the Christian life? Yes, to know God, and we, we know God by becoming more like Christ. And how do we become more like Christ? God works in us in such a way that over time, over the course of our lives, he begins to change us and mold us and shape us more and more into the image of Jesus, which means as I go on through life, my love for God will grow this way, and my love for sin will grow this way simultaneously, right? And, but it's a process, right? Amen, for those of you guys who have been following you. Like, it's a process. It is a process, I got saved in March 2012. I didn't realize pornography was sinful until October. Like, it's a process. It is. It is a process. And so, but lo love for God going this way, love for sin going this way. Throughout that process, you are growing into the image of Jesus, which you, our lives look more like Jesus. Our love looks more like Jesus. We become more like Jesus. We talk more like Jesus. And this is the purpose of the Christian life. Now, you, you think of perfect completeness and maturity, not lacking in anything, and this makes sense. You therefore must be perfect. You therefore must be complete like I'm complete. You must be mature like I am mature. You must lack nothing like I lack nothing. How does that happen? You cling to the gospel. Like, like you, you, you cling to it. Like your life depended on it. And you don't let go. You don't let go because you can't let go. And why can't you let go? Because the love of Christ has so impacted your life 
that you enjoy holding on and you want to hold on. And the things that you used to love, you now hate. And the things that you hate, you used to love. And you desire God and you want to know God. And so you, you hold on to God and you chase him. You chase him and you rest in him. Because not only do you already have him, but you are growing in that which he has already called you, which is righteous. When you get saved, God declares you righteous and holy, and then you spend the rest of your life growing into the thing that he declared you, righteous and holy. Because before God, we are righteous and holy, and we grow in our righteousness and holiness as people confined to bodies that are prone to sin. Since God calls us to a radical love, we must pursue holiness. We must pursue holiness. We must, with, with, with all of our strength, with all of our soul, look to cling to the gospel, to know Jesus. And what are the ways that we do that? The ways that we cling to the gospel are through prayer and, 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 and hanging out with other believers and sharing the gospel with other people and doing the work of the ministry and spreading the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven and worshiping the Lord, not just in song, but as a way of life and to love others extravagantly because we've been extravagantly loved. These are, these are the ways that we cling to the gospel. Look, there, there's nothing worthwhile in only showing affection to the people who know you. There's nothing worthwhile in wanting to retaliate to somebody. It's, it's not worthwhile. It's, it's empty. Your fulfillment and satisfaction will be abundantly full when you know Jesus. I promise you that. I swear to you that. That the only way that your satisfaction and your joy will be complete, not lacking in anything, is if you know the Lord, if you know Christ, if you know who he is and you enjoy him. How do I know that? Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter five, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Satisfied. There's ultimate satisfaction and joy in the gospel, and that comes as we pursue holiness together. That is the Christian life, the pursuit of holiness. But we can't do that unless we rely on God. The reason why I wanted to give you a picture of this radical love is to, at the end of the night, tell you that you, you can't love like that. It's impossible for you. Try, try it on your own and then come tell me how it went because it's not gonna go well. You might throw a skateboard at somebody and hit them in the face. Like, you might do that. But in all seriousness, it is impossible for the human heart to love in this way apart from God. And so any ability, any effort to love in this way has to start with dependence on God. We have to rely on him. And as we pursue holiness together, we make an effort and we do things, absolutely. But all of that comes from a posture of dependence on God. God, I need you. Lord, I need you. I need you. I can't do this. I can't do this. I need you. If we do that, we will be perfectly complete and mature, not lacking in anything. We will inherit the kingdom of God. We will know God and enjoy God. You can't do this apart from God. And many of you think that you can. You can't. 
can't. Look, in doing this, God will give us everything we need to accomplish his purposes. We will, we will lack nothing. Anything we want to do for the kingdom of God, God will help us do that. He might not let us do everything we want, but everything he wants us to do, he'll help us do that. We will have the ability to love our enemies. We will have the ability to work for the good of all people. And we will truly pursue maturity and faith out of our enjoyment and pleasure in God. God's power at work in you does this. He does the work, we get the reward. He gets the glory and we get grace. That's the gospel. Let's pray. God, thanks for your love for us. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for um, this gospel that uh, is just, there is so much love and grace in the good news of Jesus that I, I can't explain it with words. No, no word can comprehend. No mind can fully grasp the depth of your love for us. But I pray, God, that you would continue to show that to us, that throughout our lives you would unfold piece by piece the depth and the width and the height and the length of your love. God, that we would see it, that we would know you, that we would enjoy you, God, that through our dependence on you, God, help us, help us see our need for you. Help us to rely on you. And, and through that, God, I pray that we would have the strength and the endurance and the perseverance to love our enemies truly, to truly love our enemies, to truly pray for the people who hate us because we know Jesus, to love them, not because we have to, but because we want to and because we enjoy it. God, motivate us to love this way. And God, help us in everything we do to do it as, a, as, a, as an expression of our worship and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.